So this morning, would you open up your Bibles to the last few verses of Acts chapter 7. I have subtitled our lesson this morning, A Standing Ovation. And I think you can figure out why I have given it that subtitle. We'll be looking at verses 55 to 60. And let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you for life that you have so graciously given to us. Thank you for the opportunity you have also given to us, provided for us through your son for eternal life, that we might be able to tabernacle with you forever, as your beloved Stephen is doing even now as we look at his life. Father, thank you for his life. Thank you for the example of how to live a spirit-filled, Christ-like life that he has provided not only for us some 2,000 years later, but for many, many people down through church history who have looked at his life, many martyrs who have probably um, just considered how he died and it encouraged them, encouraged them to know that you are waiting for us. And that to be absent from the body is to be present with you. And that there really is no death for the Christian. The body goes to sleep, but instantly our soul is with you. As you said to the thief on the cross, today he would be with you in paradise. Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that there is really nothing to fear about death for the believer. Now, thank you for this time that you have provided for us and the privilege we have to assemble in this beautiful facility. I pray, Lord, that your your spirit would have his will and way in every heart and that you would help me, Lord, to only say those things that would lift up your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Stephen's sermon, I think we would all agree by this point in time, Stephen's sermon was a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece of a skilled artist painting pictures of Jesus from Old Testament characters. It was a discourse from a scriptural scholar. If ever there was a man, other than the Apostle Paul, who knew his Old Testament, it was Stephen. It was the keenly selective historical dissertation of a spirit-filled prophet For Stephen was definitely a New Testament prophet. He proclaimed forth the word of God. And it was the work of a lethally skilled warrior using the two-edged sword of truth. It was all those things and even more. But it was also a death warrant for Stephen. The reaction of the council to Stephen's message was twofold. In verse 54... The first thing it told us is that they were cut to the heart, right? Cut to the heart, and that literally means their hearts were sawn asunder. And what was the second thing? They gnashed their teeth at him. Actually, it says they gnashed their teeth on him like a dog would do with a bone, but I don't think they literally did that. They were just gnashing their teeth in seething rage and frustration, Stephen is to be the martyr, but his message had sawn his listeners in half. Interestingly, as I just said, that word for cut, speaking of cutting the heart in half, is the Greek word diaprio, and it does mean cut asunder. 
But that word is also found in Revelation chapter 11 with regard to the preaching of the two mighty witnesses who will be preaching during the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period here on earth. They're going to be very much like Stephen because they're going to be spirit-filled, powerful to be able to do miracles, call down fire from heaven, powerful messengers to Israel. But the Antichrist at the three and a half point mark of the tribulation will be allowed by God to kill them. And it tells us that the people of the world, meaning all the unsaved people of the world, will be very glad for the death of those two mighty witnesses. Actually, it tells us that they will lie on a street in Jerusalem for all the world to see. And for many centuries, people said, how could that be? You know, on the other side of the world, how could the whole world see them? They won't bury them. They won't give them the decency of a burial. They'll just leave them there. That's how much they hate them. Um, but now we know how all the world will see them because of television and internet, etc. Just no problem at all. We can instantly think, see things that are going on in the other part of the world. And so they'll lie there for, the, for three and a half days. And what happens on the third day? <laughs> the whole world will see them get up and rise. But um, during the time when they're laying there dead, the whole world is actually going to celebrate what I call Happy Dead Witness Day. I don't know if Hallmark will come out with a card for that or not, but it really literally, and I'm not making this, I made up that title, but I'm not making up what goes on because it says in a Revelation 11.10 that the unsaved will rejoice, they will make merry, and they will send gifts to one another. That's how happy they're going to be that these two guys are dead. And the reason that they are having this celebration is given to us in the scripture. It says, quote, because the two prophets tormented them. And here's where I'm going with all this. The word for torment is the aprio, the same exact word that is used to describe the cutting of the hearts of those who listen to Stephen. The aprio. So that means that Stephen's words of truth had tormented his listeners. The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of a Christ-centered message of truth is like hell coming to earth for spirit-resisting, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people because it's, it's like torment for them to hear it. Have you ever encountered somebody like that? You present them with the gospel message that they are a sinner, we're all sinners, and that we're desperately in need of a savior because we have a holy God and there's one and only savior, Jesus Christ, who, who died for our sins, and they can't stand. It's like stopping up their ears and they're resisting the spirit and that's torment for them to hear that. So that was interesting to find that same word over, you know, used about the two mighty witnesses. It gives us a better picture of things, doesn't it? Well, there is a big contrast that the Spirit of God purposely gave to us between, he draws our attention to see the difference between the, the selfless serenity of Stephen and the berserk rage of the Sanhedrin council. We see this 
you know, we saw it with the Lord Jesus when he was on trial, right? He was perfectly calm, and they, the, the council was the ones who were, were just, you know, all bent out of shape. Well, we see the same difference here. The Sanhedrin council is like a pack of angry wolves about to devour a sheep, an innocent sheep. And they're just, they're torn to shreds. But he, Stephen, is just as cool as a cucumber. <laughs> Where did that expression come from? Cucumber. Cool as a cucumber. He was gracious right to the very end. You know the last words out of his mouth? He's praying for the Lord to not, not count that, the sin of killing him to, to his murderer's account. Forgive them, Father. So he's, he's interceding on behalf of his own murderers right to the end. He's very gracious to the end. And this is not only true of Stephen. It's been true of many, many Christian martyrs down through history, church history. The world, when, it seems like when the world gives its worst, which it's in the process of doing today, isn't it? When the world gives its worst, the spirit-filled Christian shines all the more brightly. He gives his best, and that's definitely what we see in Stephen. He knew, Stephen knew that he was expendable for the sake of truth. On the other hand, the religious rulers were clinging feverishly to their pride at the expense of truth. You know, in this life, there are causes that are worth dying for. Our military men understand that. My own son understands that. I would give my life in a heartbeat for my grandchildren or my own children. I know you all would too. There are causes worth dying for. But Stephen had found the best, the best of all. He died for the sake of the only message that can save the eternal souls of people. That is a cause worth dying for. So let's look at Stephen's last moments of life. I'm going to start at verse 54, which is a review, and then we'll just go through to the end of the chapter. It says, when they, and that's, of course, the council, the Sanhedrin council, when they heard these things, his whole message, his whole sermon, when they heard these things, they were the april. They were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But, here's the contrast, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, what were they full of? They were full of anger and hatred. He is full of the Holy Ghost. And he looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, you see something like that, you can't keep that to yourself, can you? He couldn't keep that to himself or anything. And so he says to them, behold it's like wow look I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing on the right hand of God and what was their reaction to that wonderful vision that Stephen was permitted to have not good and they cried out with a loud voice no words we don't know what they said probably and they stoned um, and they stopped their ears. That's the other reaction. Stopped their ears. And um, I lost my place. I'm on the wrong verse. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Remember how the church was in one accord at the beginning? Now look at the contrast here. They're in one accord, but it's to kill somebody. Someone who has just shared the truth with them. 
verse 58, and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. First time in the Bible that we look at that name Saul. I have it circled in my scripture here. And it says, and they stoned Stephen. And Stephen was the one calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. All right, now to discuss this passage, here's what we're going to do. We're going to consider what Stephen's death meant to four different groups of people. Two of them are actually individual people. We're going to look at what his death, first of all, meant for Israel. What did Stephen's death mean for Israel? One word, condemnation. Stephen was the first martyr in a long line of martyrs throughout church history. Beginning with Emperor Nero. You've all heard of him, right? He was a, he was a wacko. <laughs> I don't know why so many heads of countries have been wackos, but he was really, he, he purposely, he wanted to rebuild Rome. So you know what he did? He set it on fire and it got destroyed, but he fiddled while Rome burned. You know, that's the one where you get the expression. Um, he blamed the Christians. So the persecution of Christians began in the mid-60s A.D. with Emperor Nero. And then there were ten great Roman persecutions against Christians. However, before that time, before Emperor Nero, from the time of the death of Stephen, which was probably around 35 A.D., from the death of Stephen to Emperor Nero in the 60s, there was no Roman persecution of Christians. There was only Jewish persecution of the followers of Jesus. You see, the only people who really fought the Christians were the Jews in that early part of the first century. Why did they fight the Jews? Well, because, I mean the Christians. Why did the Jews fight the Christians and persecute the Christians, starting with Stephen? It's because the Christians said that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah, and what had the Jews done with him? <laughs> they had killed him. So that wasn't really very good for them, you know? Also, if Christianity was true, they understood that that meant that Judaism was obsolete, because it had been fulfilled, everything that it pointed to, the law, the temple, everything, the sacrifices was fulfilled in Jesus. That's what Stephen had just explained to them. And they wanted to cling to their religion, didn't they? They loved their religion. They didn't want it to be obsolete and finished. And then the Sadducees were really running the show. Most, the high priests and the chief priests were all Sadducees. And so the high-ranking uh, leadership of Israel didn't believe in resurrection, did they? So if Christianity was true, that meant that their doctrine was wrong. So um, they were determined, the leaders of Israel were determined to convince the Romans that Christianity was a threat to the Roman Empire. Now the Romans... Initially, they didn't have a whole lot of problem with the, the sect of the Nazarene. They initially thought of Christianity as merely another branch of Judaism. 
After all, Jesus was Jewish, wasn't he? And all of his initial followers were Jewish. So naturally, Rome thought that the Jesus people were just another branch of Judaism. You know, they had so many branches anyway. You had your Pharisees and your Sadducees and you had your scribes and your Herodians and your Essenes and your Zealots. So big deal, another sect, you know, the sect of the Nazarene. That's all they, they just thought it was another branch. So the uh, Jews were very, they wanted to make the Romans understand that Christianity was not just another Jewish religious sect, that it was a break from Judaism. And they claimed, and they had tried this little trick before, and it had worked for them. They claimed that Christianity was a threat to Caesar. Who had they used that on? Pilate, remember? To get him to finally condemn, to crucify Jesus. They said, you know, if you don't, you're no friend of Caesar. So they're trying that trick again, and they say Christianity is a threat to Caesar because the Christians worship uh, and serve another king, another king. And we do worship another king than Caesar. But we would not have been if we were, I mean, the Christians would not have been a threat to Caesar because what did Jesus say, say to do? <laughs> I can't say it right. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, we are to obey those in authority over us and unto God the things that belong to God. But they, they were successful in finally getting Rome's attention. Well, following the end of the historical record that is covered in the book of Acts, which remember we said the book of Acts is just the record of the first generation of the church, just covers about 40 years. Following the end of the record of the book of Acts, the Jews did get their way, and there began a succession of Roman persecution. I do think it's kind of funny, ironic, I don't know whatever word you want to use, that the Jews actually got destroyed too, didn't they? The Romans came in actually earlier than they began their persecution with the Christians. They came in in 70 AD and scattered the Jews, killed many of them, and of course wiped out Jerusalem. But um, so, so it lasted, the Roman persecution of the Christians lasted for about 250 years until Emperor Constantine came and he made Christianity the religion of the whole Roman Empire. Um, I don't think he was really a Christian, but anyway, that's another story. So it is estimated that during the next two and a half centuries after the book of Acts, there were approximately, and this is going to stun you, approximately 10 million Christians who died as martyrs for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them in horrific ways. You've heard how they would set them on fire and use them for torches and put them inside of lion skins and, I mean, uh, animal skins, sheep skins, and feed them to lions. Just horrible things I don't even want to think about. But awful things are going on in the world today also, aren't they, against Christians and against Jews? Because who does Satan hate more than anybody? The Christians and the Jews. So anyway, mart the martyrdom of Stephen is important to look at, not only because he was the first martyr for Christians, and billions of Christians have died for their faith. I was thinking about how it looks like today there are other religions growing faster than Christianity, and it has looked like that for many, many centuries. 
Like Islam is growing fast. Well, you know why? Because Christians don't go around killing people of other religions. Yeah, so there's the, the end will show many, 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 many souls in heaven. But the world can't see that. They look at the world and they say, well, there aren't that many Christians compared to this is growing and that's growing. But that's because so many of us have been put to death. But so look, to look at Stephen is important, not only because he was the first Christian martyr, but also do you know that his death is the only full description of the death of a Christian martyr that we have in the entire New Testament? The only description of his death of a death of a martyr that's given in the... Now, there are others who died. For example, the Apostle Paul did die for his faith. But you have to go to extra-biblical material to find out that he was beheaded in Rome. That is not told to us in the scripture. We know that James was the first apostle to die. But you have to go, like, to Fox's Book of Martyrs to find it, because all the scripture says is that James was killed, period. The only full description we have is the death of Stephen. The last moments of Stephen's life and the circumstances about his death, if you can imagine, must have been a very important part of the scripture for those 10 million people who likewise died for their faith in Christ in the next two and a half generations, I mean uh, centuries after him. And, don't you think this part of the scripture, what if we, you and I were facing possible martyrdom? In, now, we've been living in a very blessed land for a long time. Most of us don't even think. You know what the first book, besides the Bible, um, that Christians throughout the ages read and taught to their children was? Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because to be a Christian was almost equivalent to being, well, it was, to being persecuted and possibly to die for your faith. So they, they would teach their children from, a, from, from little children <laughs> that you might possibly have to give your life. But we have been spared from that, haven't we, in this country? It may be coming, um, and I guess it is coming. We don't know who lives in, even in our own communities, do we? But we're going to be a target. We are a target already. I had a very interesting email that I got yesterday from the military. Um, and I'm not going to say any more about that, but you can probably guess because it's been on the news. But it's coming. But we have been protected in this country. But if, if we, isn't the life of Stephen in the way he died, isn't that an encouragement? Don't you think for many, many martyrs down through the, the centuries when they read that and they saw what he saw at the end and that it wasn't really anything to fear because they would be present with the Lord. So I think that it has served a wonderful purpose that the, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to, to include this in the book of Acts. Who do you think told Luke how this all went down, how Stephen died? Who do you think told Luke? You got it. Saul was there. He witnessed the whole thing, didn't he? And he and Luke traveled together, and I'm sure he gave him detail by detail because one thing Saul couldn't get out of his mind was the death of Stephen. Well, obviously, the Lord does not call all of his followers to be martyrs, or we wouldn't be here today, some of us in our elderly years. Um, but we are all called to be his witnesses, are we not? Yes, we are. And if we are living as godly witnesses for him, we do suffer various forms of persecution. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus, what's the next word? Shall 
suffer persecution. If we are living a godly witness for Christ, there are various other ways to be persecuted. Some of them actually hurt more than just being put to death. If you have been rejected by family, that can hurt more than, than just being put to death or being disowned. A lot of Muslims, I mean, they, 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 they're just disowned, and Jews who come to Christ, they're disowned by their families. The Greek word for martyr is martyr. It's pronounced a little bit different. It's martus, but it's the same word. But interestingly, over 50 times in the New Testament, the word martus is translated witness. There's only three times that the word is actually translated what it is, martyr. And one of them has to do with Stephen. But 50 compared to three. Now, why is that? Well, because so many witnesses for Christ were being martyred that the two words became synonymous. If you were a witness for Christ, well, you know, you weren't going to be around very long. <laughs> You'd be martyred. Now, the Lord may not call on any of us here to give our lives for, the G for Jesus Christ. I don't know, because I don't know the future. He may not call on any of us to do that. But he does call on every one of us to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. We are to be living sacrifices for him. And you know what the bottom line is? It is often more difficult... I would say probably that it is more difficult to live for Christ than to die for Christ. Because to live for him is a lifelong thing, isn't it? Every day, every moment of every day, you've got to yield to the spirit and you don't want to grieve the spirit and, you know, resist. We can't resist the spirit, unsaved resist, but we don't want to grieve him. We don't want to quench him and we want to be his witnesses and their sins of omission and all that kind of stuff. It is harder to live day by day because it's a lifelong thing than to die for him. Now, to die for him might be more painful, but it's over pretty quickly. Another truth exemplified so beautifully by Stephen is that if we are living for the Lord, if we are living for the Lord, we will be ready to die for him. The reason, remember, that Stephen was chosen in the first place to be a deacon, to serve the apostles in the ministry of the early church. And remember, he was the first on the list. They didn't get to choose the apostles Jesus chose them. So the first one of the whole church, and there were thousands in the early church, the first one they chose was Stephen. So there must have been really something special about this man. The reason they chose him is because he was spirit-filled. It was a way of life for him. There's about four times it tells us he was full of the spirit. Therefore, he did not have to make any major adjustments to his life when it came time to die. When it came to time to die, he was already completely, totally yielded and controlled by the Spirit. Isn't that, isn't that the way we should be living? Spirit-filled every moment, and we won't have to adjust ourselves when it's time for us to draw that final breath. Well, before we look at the sight Stephen saw when he looked up into the heavens in verses 55 and 56, I want us to think back, if you were here, if not, just listen to it, when Jesus was in the second of his three trials before the Sanhedrin council. Remember, Jesus went through three religious trials with the Jews, and then he went through three civil trials um, with the Romans. Well, it was at the time of his second out of three of the Jewish trials, and he's standing before Caiaphas, the same man Stephen is standing before. And... Um, 
and Caiaphas adjures him. He says, I adjure you, which means I'm putting you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And you remember what Jesus responded? He said, thou hast said. <laughs> you know what that means? Yep, you got that one right, Caiaphas. Thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man, and they all knew that that was a title for the Messiah, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. They all knew because of the book of Daniel, which we'll be looking at when we come back. Our next study will be on the book of Daniel. Sorry about that. <laughs> the Lord really has led me to do that. She's, she was praying I would teach the book of Hebrews. Maybe if I live long enough, I would love to do Hebrews. Um, but uh, they knew from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that the Son of Man did indeed refer to the Messiah. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself, was the Son of Man. And they knew that Daniel said the Son of Man, the Messiah, would come with the clouds of heaven to receive from the Ancient of Days. Who was the Ancient of Days? A reference to Jehovah God. He would come with the clouds and he would receive dominion and glory and a kingdom which would not ever be destroyed. So Jesus' answer to Caiaphas was... Uh, you know, basically, yep, you've said it, I am the Christ, the son of the living God, and no matter what you do to me, because I know you're going to kill me, it doesn't matter, because I am the son of man, I am the Messiah, I will be coming back in the clouds, and I will receive from the ancient of days a kingdom that will last forever. And Caiaphas was so horrified, huh, he feigned piety, he rent his clothing, remember? He tore his outer garment, which was against the Mosaic law. And that was another picture, by the way, of the end of Judaism, the end of the priesthood. He didn't know what he was doing, just like that when the veil rent in half in the temple was showing the end of the sacrificial system. That was the end of the priesthood. But he, he tore his clothing, and then he condemned Jesus to die. Well, now, a couple years later, I'm, I'm not sure in the time frame, but now Stephen with his face glowing, is standing before this same council and Caiaphas. And he's looking up. They're in the chamber, so he's not looking. They're not outside. He's in a building, and he's looking up, and, and it's just like the Lord parted the Red Sea. The Lord parted, you know, the top of that building and, and, and the, the, the atmosphere around the earth, and he just let Stephen see into the third heaven. And Stephen's standing in front of them, his face like lightning, and he says, I see him. You know, behold, behold, I see him. The heavens are open, and the Son of Man is standing on the right hand of God. And, oh my, they are just absolute, they go berserk. They're ricocheting off the walls. They're horrified. This just cannot go on. Is this thing never going to end? I mean, these Jesus people are going to be the end of us if we don't put an end to all of this. Rather than one man tearing his clothes, all of the men, together in one accord, unified, they all cry out in one voice. We don't know what they said. I told you before, it's just grrr, you know. And they stop up their ears. Isn't that exactly what Stephen had said? They always do resist. They were resisting the spirit, and they run at him. They could not see what Stephen saw. 
but what he told them that he was seeing, um, if true, and I'm sure they didn't believe it, but it did, if true, and we know it was true, it testified to the Messiahship, to the deity, and to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Messiahship, he says, I see the Son of Man, and where is he? On the throne of God with his Father, standing, of course. Um, that's deity. And, and he's in his body, his resurrected body. So all three things he was testifying to. The, and the council was just livid. They were livid. Stephen, was what he said he was seeing was blatant blasphemy to them. Unless it was true. But that was a possibility that they had absolutely no interest in exploring. Sad, isn't it? And so they run upon him with one accord. It says in verse 57, now the word ran in the Greek that is used there is also interesting. It's enlightening. It's the word ormao. And it is also used over in Mark 5, verse 13, to speak of the frantic rush of a herd of demon-possessed pigs <laughs> to run off a cliff there at on the Decapolis side of the Sea of Galilee to drown themselves. Do you remember when Jesus cast out the demons from that crude, rude dude in the nude and he put them into the herd of pigs and the pigs wanted to have nothing to do with those demons so they went off the cliff and, and drowned themselves. So this supposedly dignified group of pious men of the council literally went, they went berserk. They tossed all Priority to the wind as they rushed on Stephen like a herd of demon-possessed swine. <laughs> now, what is stated about the execution of Stephen indicates that it was more the spontaneous outburst of an angry mob. It's more like angry mob violence than like a legal execution although they did make some attempt to abide by a few of the legalities of carrying out a death sentence. For example, in Leviticus 14.14, 14, it says that to stone someone to death, they were to be carried, taken outside the camp. Okay, so what do they do? They take Stephen outside the city of Jerusalem in order to stone him. Most commentators say that they probably took him, where do you think? Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary, because it was right there, right outside the city, very near to the chamber of hewn stone where they would have had this trial. They probably took him and stoned him there at Golgotha. They also seem to have abided by Deuteronomy 17.7, which says that the witnesses of the accused, remember he was accused by false witnesses of those four things, blaspheming Moses, God, the law, and the temple. Those witnesses were to be the first ones to throw the stones, and that's what we read about in verse 58. It was the witnesses who laid down their clothing, their coats, their outer garments at Saul's feet. But even if they did manage to go by some of the guidelines for carrying out the death sentence, there is great hypocrisy in the stoning of Stephen. For one thing, Stephen was not guilty of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, or the temple. They were. So they were hypocrites in that. For another thing, um, did you notice how quickly they carry out a death sentence? 
they don't even hesitate to put somebody to death, even though Roman law prohibited the Jews from carrying out a death sentence. Do you remember how conveniently they had used the Roman law excuse to not put anybody to death when it came to Jesus? Remember in John 18, 31, you know, he says, well, you take him, you deal with him. And they said, oh, we're not allowed. You know, Roman law says they use that excuse with uh, Jesus, but it sure doesn't stop them here, does it? Not one bit. They were hypocrites in that they only pretended to care about laws when those laws suited their own purposes. And by the way, one of their own Jewish laws, not talking about Roman law, but one of their own Jewish laws said that they were not to, com to carry out a death sentence on the same day as a man's trial. And isn't that exactly what they're doing? They don't really care about Roman law. They don't really care about their own Jewish law. They were just angry, and they wanted to shut Stephen up once and for all. All right, the execution procedure, as it's carried out in the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a summarized version of Jewish law. The procedure is that the victim to be stoned was, first of all, to be pushed off a, a precipice or a cliff or a hill like Golgotha pushed off so that hopefully they tried to push him from behind so that he might fall on his head and perhaps die that way by falling on his head. And the precipice didn't have to be too tall. It was about the height of two or three men. Now we have an example of that. Remember when the citizens of Nazareth were so angry at Jesus because he said a prophecy in Isaiah was fulfilled in him. And it says literally here, I'm going to read to you what it says. They thrust him out of the city. They're obeying the law. They took him out of Nazareth. And they led him to the brow of the hill. I've seen that hill in Nazareth. It, it's pretty steep. I mean, it just goes kind of down. They took him to that hill that they might cast him down headlong. Headlong. They tried to get the person to fall on their head. And, and perhaps die that way, and then they would just throw rocks until he was buried. Now, of course, they didn't succeed with Jesus, did they? Because it wasn't his time to die, and it wasn't the way he was going to die. He knew he was going to be lifted up. Um, so he just, I don't know how he did it, but he passed through the midst of them. Some kind of miracle, he just passed through the midst of them. So if the fall did not kill the victim, then um, it at least might break his legs or some other bones in his body so he couldn't run or he couldn't try to dodge, you know, the rocks as they're being thrown at him. And then, typically, this would be the procedure. And I don't, they didn't do this with Stephen. But, uh, and we know because he was standing up at the end, because it says he kneeled down. So he was in a stand. They were ready to get rid of him. I don't know, maybe they did push him off the, the Golgotha, but then they started throwing the stones. But he's still standing at the end, and he kneels to pray. But what they would do after the person fell down the precipice, they would turn him on his back and leave him laying there facing up, and then the first witness would find the biggest rock he could, and he would try to drop it from the top of that precipice and, and hit, go, aim for the man's chest so that he would crush his heart. Isn't that awful? Awful. And, you know, then the second witness would pick up, and I don't know how many witnesses were involved in this. I don't know if the whole council probably took part, at least all the younger guys. Maybe the old guys didn't participate. But they were all witnesses of him having proclaimed by now the deity of Jesus. So they might have all been involved. Um, and you know they would throw the rocks. And rocks in Israel, I'm not talking about little gravel stones in your driveway. 
rocks. They might have had a pile ready to do the stoning, I don't know, but they'd pick up big rocks to throw. And that was a very awful way to die. I mean, I'd rather die that way than crucifixion, but it's still not good. I mean, you have rocks hitting your head and your chest and your arms and you're bleeding and bruised and it's just awful. And Stephen's um, calmness in all this is just absolutely amazing. But they, they would throw until finally he died, and then they would continue to throw rocks until the victim was completely buried under a pile of rocks. However, we know that Stephen's body did not lie to rot under a pile of rocks. How do we know that? Well, look at Acts 8, verse 3. It tells us there, and I'll read it later, but it says he was given a proper burial by devout men. Remember we started in the, the book of Acts with devout men on the day of Pentecost? You know who devout men are? Men who knew God, and because they knew God, they knew his son. These are Christians who loved Stephen, and they took him and gave him a proper burial. So let's review a minute. Because we're ending a long study, not just from the book of Acts, but do you remember about 13 years ago we started the life of Christ and we went through all four Gospels chronologically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is the end of about 13 years of study because really the, the Gospels just took us right naturally into Acts. So since the beginning of the record of the four Gospels, the Jews, and when I say the Jews, I'm speaking about the leaders of the country, had willfully allowed and or committed three murders, starting with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was foreordained and commissioned by God the Father for his ministry. He was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He was to prepare the way before the Messiah. And the Jews hated him because he, he said it like it was, <laughs> just like every, all these other guys, Stephen. He pointed his long bony finger and said, called them a uh, uh, brood of vipers. They did not like, I think they knew he was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, but they didn't like him. So when Herod arrested him and put him in prison, the Jews did nothing. They could have, they were good at conniving. They were good at manipulating. We know that from how they handled Pilate, right? If they had wanted to, they could have manipulated Herod so he would release John the Baptist, but they did nothing. They allowed him to be murdered. And when John the Baptist, when they allowed John the Baptist to be murdered, they were sinning against God the Father. God the Father commissioned John. Who then did they next murder? Jesus, God the Son. They were sinning against God the Son when they murdered God the Son. And now, Stephen, they murder Stephen, who is the Lord, he's the representative of the Lord's spiritual body on earth, the church, the Holy Spirit working through the church. When they kill Stephen, they resist the Holy Spirit. They sin against the Holy Spirit. So they sin with John against God the Father, with Jesus against God the Son, with Stephen against God the Holy Spirit, and guess what, Israel? There are no member, more members of the Godhead left to resist. So as a nation, corporately, Israel stood condemned. What did the death of Stephen mean for Israel? Condemnation. She stood condemned and ripe for judgment. This was it. This was her last opportunity for Christ to return and set up his kingdom. 
But even still, in his long-suffering grace, the Lord gave the people, the individual people of Israel, an additional generation of grace. And many individual Jews did come to faith in Jesus Christ. But in 70 AD, what happened? Judgment fell through the hand of the Romans, which was really through the hand of God, and she is still to this day under that divine judgment. She will not come out from under that national judgment until the time of the Lord's return, when finally she will look upon him whom she pierced, and she will mourn for him as her only son in genuine repentance. And Israel, corporately as a country, as a nation, shall be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. Well, we've been talking a lot about threes, three trials of Jesus, Jewish, three trials of Jesus, civil, uh, three persons of the Trinity, three deaths. There's some an another three. Did you know that there were also three trials of the early church leaders before the Sanhedrin Council? Remember back in Acts 4, who were the first ones to stand before this council as early church leaders? Peter and John, Peter and John. And that trial ended with threats. The Jews threatened them. Don't you dare speak or teach anymore in that name. That name. They didn't want to ever say that name. So that trial ended with threats. Then there was the trial of all 12 apostles. And how did that one end? With flogging. Remember, they were all beaten. They were all scourged. And now the third trial with Stephen. How does this one end? Stoning with death. So you went from threats to, to flogging to death. So the persecution, you see, how is getting progressively worse and worse. But with the death of the first Christian, it breaks out in all fullness with a young man named Saul at the forefront. Ironically, he too would one day stand in trial before this very same council <laughs> because he was to be Stephen's spiritual heir. Saul was really the spiritual son of Stephen, which brings us to look next at what did Stephen's death mean to a young man named Saul? And I put it again in one word, conviction. The mention of a young man named Saul at ver in verse 58, at whose feet the outer garments of the witnesses were laid, brings us to a major turning point in the history of Christianity. We all know that Saul becomes the primary figure of the rest of the book of Acts. However, what is he here? Here he is merely the keeper of the coats. <laughs> He's the keeper of the coats. Later on, actually in verse in chapter 9 not too far from where we are we're not going to do that but uh, part of me wants to but we'll have to save that maybe for another day but later on he becomes the greatest christian evangelist that this world has ever seen the keeper of the coats to the greatest evangelist by keeping the coats of those who were stoning stephen paul or saul was giving his consent to Stephen's death, which Luke tells us. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. Luke tells us that. It says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And you know what? Paul tells us that himself. 
later on in Acts 22:20. 20. He's actually praying to the Lord, and he says these words. He says, And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, that's one of three times when that word martus is actually translated martyr. Paul says, And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death. And I kept the raiment of them that slew him. Well, where was Saul from? Tarsus of Cilicia. So he probably, most likely, was one of the main debaters against Stephen in the Greek-speaking Jerusalem church of the Cilicians, which was purposely mentioned by Luke in Acts 6-9 to point that out. These two men knew each other. They were both Old Testament Bible scholars, and Saul was always frustrated because he could never, ever debate and win against Stephen. He had irresistible wisdom, didn't he? We talked about that. So he heartily agreed, not only with Stephen's death, but that the whole church, the sect of the Nazarene, should be stomped out. He hated the Christian message. He hated the Christians. Look at Acts 8.3. It says, as for Saul, he made what? Havoc of the church. You know what that word means? He ravished the church, entering into every house. He was searching every house in Jerusalem looking for believers and hauling or dragging. It actually says hailing, but that means hauling or dragging men and women. He didn't care if they were females, dragging them, committing them to prison. Paul himself later would confess that he was the chief of sinners because he had murderous intentions for all who believed in Jesus of Nazareth. However, no matter how angry he was against the Christians. And no matter how many of them he tried to silence. You know Saul was a murderer? No matter how many of them he tried to permanently silence. You know what he could not silence? He couldn't silence that inner voice in his own soul. In his conscience. That's why when he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know what? The Lord Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to keep kicking against the pricks, isn't it? The pricks of your conscience. When was his conscience pricked? Through the ministry and the message and the martyrdom of Stephen. And Stephen's prayer of forgiveness there, his last words, were effective. Maybe not for the council. They had resisted all three members of the Godhead. But for Saul, Stephen's prayer of forgiveness took effect. Because there came that day, by God's grace, when Saul saw the same glory of God that Stephen saw. And the world has never been the same since, has it? What a couple. Saul and Stephen, Stephen and Saul. They changed this whole world for their Lord. Well, what did the death of Stephen mean for the church? It meant the continuation of the commission, the great commission given to them by the Lord, Acts 1.8. They were to be his witnesses where? Not just in Jerusalem, guys. Get out of here. You've been here long enough. Don't get so cozy. The world will only have one church, the church of Jerusalem. They needed to be 
spreading out, didn't they? Going into Samaria and to the outermost parts of the world. Well, verse 2 of chapter 8 tells us that devout men carried Stephen from his place of execution to a proper burial place, and they made great lamentation over him. He was well-loved. Stephen was beloved by the church. Isn't it interesting that we have another comparison between Stephen and his Lord, who had also been lovingly taken from his place of execution and given a proper burial place by devout men. Who were those two devout men? Actually, men of the council, which is so fascinating. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It says that the Christians greatly lamented the death of their dearly beloved brother. They must have thought that Stephen's martyrdom was a terrible waste for the church. But you know what? The Lord does not waste the blood of his saints. I love that expression. And Tertullian, remember him? One of the early church fathers said, the blood of the martyrs is the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church what did jesus say in john 12 24 he said except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die it abideth alone if you just have a seed and you don't plant it in the ground it just sits there by itself doesn't it but if it dies if you put it in the ground what does it do it brings forth much fruit the early church did not have any idea of the harvest from that one corn of wheat, Stephen, named Stephen, that it would be so bountiful that it still continues to this day, 2,000 years later, through the salvation and the ministry and the divinely inspired words of Saul of Tarsus, who wrote 13 or 14 of the 27 books of our New Testament. They had no idea how much fruit would come from that one seed planted into the ground. You know, there's a Mexican proverb that says... They keep trying to bury us. I guess they don't know that we're seeds. I love it. I love it. Stephen's death meant the continuation of the Great Commission. The believers had been witnessing to the Jews first, as they were supposed to, ever since Pentecost. But the persecution that began with Stephen forced the Jewish believers out of Jerusalem and onto other people. Philip, in the very next chapter, chapter 8, who was another deacon, mentioned after Stephen, a deacon turned evangelist, where did he go? Samaria. He went to Samaria. And then the whole rest of the book of Acts is about taking the gospel to Gentiles to the uttermost part of the earth. The opposition of the enemy actually helped prevent the church from completely being seen as just another Jewish sect, right? So the persecution was a good thing. Well, what did the death of Stephen mean for Stephen himself? Coronation. Remember what his name is in Greek? Stephanos. It means crown. A victor's crown. His death for him meant coronation. Are you hearing that ringing or is it just me? 
maybe I'm about to be coronated. <laughs> I'm hearing a ringing. All right, at the beginning of Stephen, you remember at the beginning of his message, we read that those in the council, you know, after he had been accused, they were looking steadfastly at him to see what his reaction would be to the accusations. They're looking at him, and what did they see? They saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And now who's the one who's looking steadfastly? Stephen. This is at the end of his message, and he himself is looking steadfastly, and of course he's looking up, and what he saw was far greater than the face that looked like an angel. He actually saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Isn't it interesting that Stephen had opened his message back in verse 2 of chapter 7 talking about the God of glory who had appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia and he closes up his message get, getting to see for himself the God of glory. Oh, fantastic. The church can know. That includes you and I. If you're born again, you're a member of God's Christ's body, his spiritual bride on earth. The church can know that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken his rightful seat at God's right hand. You know, they, we, nobody got to see him after he passed the clouds, right? They didn't actually get to see if he went all the way to heaven and sat at the Father's right hand. David had predicted that in Psalm 110.1. We talked about that many times. When the Lord Jehovah God said to my Lord Adonai God, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. David predicted that, that it would happen. Peter preached that it had happened in Acts chapter 2. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, says that it did happen. It says that after he by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3. But guess who saw it? Who was the eyewitness that, yes, what David predicted and what Peter preached and what Hebrews confirms, who was the one who said, yes, I saw it, he is there at the right hand of God the Father? Stephen is the eyewitness of that. So we can be sure he did sit in his, at his father's right hand. But when Stephen is seeing him, he's not in his finished work of redemption position. You know, when he finished his work, unlike the priests who never could sit down because their work was never finished, Jesus ascended and what? Sat down. That is his finished work of redemption position. He's got other positions. Do you know what his high priestly position is? He is our high priest interceding for us. That's his knee. He's on his knees in that position, so to speak, you know. But you know what his standing position is? See, Stephen didn't see him sitting, did he? Something had caused the Lord Jesus Christ to stand up. What caused him to stand up? Who caused him to stand up, I should say? Stephen. Stephen caused him to stand up. You see, Stephen belonged to Jesus. Do you belong to Jesus? I hope so. He belonged to Jesus, and he was about to be killed by ungodly men because of his faith in Jesus. And so the Lord rose up from his throne to take his advocate for the defense position. You ever see a lawyer sitting? No, they're standing. And that just, oh, that just makes my heart pump. Stephen may have had no witnesses on his side in the council chamber, 
of hewn stone. But guess where he had an almighty witness for the defense, his side of the thing, of the situation. He had an advocate for the defense in heaven, an all-powerful one. Up to the time of, the, uh, of verse 54, you know, poor Stephen, all he was able to see with his eyes was what was going on in front of him. He was only able to see that earthly, unfair, unjust trial. He was facing death, and he knew it. And he, what was he looking at? How would you like to be looking at about 72 men with their teeth like that, grinding at you, gnashing at you, red-faced, stiff-necked, <laughs> hard-hearted? Um, but because he was controlled by the Holy Spirit, what did he do in the time of a storm? He wasn't stiff-necked, was he? He looked up. That's what we're to do. We don't focus on the circumstances around us in the trials of this earth. Where does our help come? From whence cometh our help? From Jesus Christ. And so he looked up steadfastly. What do you think he was looking for? The last time anybody had seen Jesus, he went up, didn't he? Maybe, like you and I, what are we waiting for? The rapture. We're looking for Jesus, too. We need to have our necks up. I, I do that when I'm driving. I'm always looking up at this guy. Oh, Jesus, could it be today? <laughs> I'd love it to be today. And there's a special crown for those who await his and look forward and love his coming. And Stephen, I think, was saying, oh, I'm about to be killed. And he looks up, see, Jesus, could you possibly come back right now? That'd be really nice. And Jesus gave him a vision of himself at his father's right hand. Wow, what a sight. Um, so he looked in the right direction in his time of need. Um, when the Lord allowed Stephen to see him, he was basically sending a message. He was saying, uh, there is justice. Ultimately, there is justice. There's not a lot down here on planet Earth. There's a lot of things that aren't just. There's a lot of things that aren't fair, right? <laughs> but guess what? Ultimately, there is justice in heaven. The Lord Jesus, Stephen's advocate for the defense, had pleaded Stephen's case before the father. Basically, he said to the father, Stephen is mine, father. You have given him to me. He has confessed me before men. He has not been ashamed of me, even in the face of imminent death. And he is coming home to us, father. He is the first of a great many martyrs, a vast multitude who will follow, who will also not be ashamed and are willing both to live and to die for the truth. I give Stephen and I give every one of them a standing ovation. Isn't that what he gave Stephen? A Don't you want to give Stephen a standing ovation? I sure do. The trial on earth had condemned an innocent man to die, but the court of heaven acquitted him. You see, Stephen was not guilty of anything he had been accused of. Blaspheming God, Moses, the law, the temple. He wasn't guilty of any. Actually, he greatly honored all of those things. And most of all, he honored his Lord and Savior. He is a hero of the faith. To say that what Stephen saw was a marvelous sight. And I think, you know, if we weren't put on morphine and so many drugs at the time of death, I think there were many. 
many, many, many accounts before all that medicine of people who in their dying moments saw something people around them couldn't see. I know of one very godly woman in our church who um, was dying of cancer, and in the morning her daughter came, it was right at dawn, and the sun was just coming up over the rise, and her daughter went in her room and raised the blind, and her mother, who had been flat in bed, out of it, in a coma, suddenly sat up, looked at the sun, and said, oh, and died. She saw something, didn't she? To say that what Stephen saw was a marvelous sight is to certainly, uh, that's a vast understatement. And if you, if you saw something like that, what would you do? Would you want to share it with other people? If all of a sudden the sky opened and you could see the Lord up there? You would not keep that to yourself, would you? Even if people thought you were a loony tune? Oh, guess what I'm seeing? You, but, you know, Stephen wasn't a selfish man. He wasn't going to keep that vision from others. He, had to, he just saw it, and he had to share it. If he was a selfish man, he wouldn't have been where he was, would he? Are we selfish with sharing the gospel? Ooh, guilty. But he, that's why he went into the synagogues to begin with, where he debated. That's why he was standing in trial, because he, he was not selfish. He had to share with everybody he met the truth. He had risked all to share with others the truth of Jesus Christ. He was the first person to die for the sake of the precious gospel message. Now, the Lord's position also of standing was body language. Now, the Lord didn't say anything to him. He does to Saul later on. He says, you know, why are you kicking against the bricks? But to Stephen, does he say anything? No, no words. But his position is body language. He is saying by his body language, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You see, Stephen had finished his course. He might not have had a very long life, but he sure had a dynamic life that continues to bear fruit to this day. He had run the race to the finish line, and he was the first to cross the finish line. And Jesus gave him a standing ovation. He gave Stephen the vision in order to encourage him in his last moments. He gave the vision also so that it would be recorded in the eternal word of God, in order to encourage many others over the centuries. You see, the Lord Jesus does not want us to be in the dark about what is on the other side. A lot of people will say, well, we don't know. We have no idea. That is not true. Jesus is light. He does not want to keep his people in the dark about the other side and what awaits those of us who have put our faith in him. He himself awaits us there, ready to welcome us home. You know what he said? If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. He's preparing dwelling places for us so we can spend eternity at tabernacling with him. He doesn't lie, does he? He does not lie. He cannot lie. He has gone ahead. Uh, we will be with him, and he will be there to greet us when we come home. So let not your hearts be troubled. Do we have to fear death? No, we do not have to fear death. I'm not looking forward to the pain of death, but we don't have to fear death because we don't die. Your person, your personality, you don't, you don't die. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, 
You will be with me in paradise. I had an hour yesterday witnessing to a young man who um, believes in purgatory. And I said, well, will you show me where that is in the scripture? I, I don't know. It's, I don't know the Bible, but that's what I'm told. Well, I said, what about the thief on the cross? He said, oh, yeah. He said today, didn't he? he? I said, yeah, he said today. He did not say after a certain time in purgatory. He did not talk about soul sleep. He said, absent with the body, present with the Lord. And it's been that way ever since he finished his redemption work. I mean, before the soul had to go into paradise, you know, the paradise section of Hades. But now, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Remember what Paul said? He said, you know, I'm between the twigs. I, I, I want to be with you guys so I can help you grow in the Lord. But, oh, my desire is really to be, uh, to depart and to be with Christ. He knew that to depart was instantly to be with Christ, which is far better, he said. Well, Stephen knew with confidence that his spirit would be immediately received by his Lord the moment his body fell asleep. And we can have that same confidence. Do you know that? Do you believe that? If you do not believe that, it means one of two things. It means that you doubt your own salvation. Or it means that you doubt the word of God. And that you put man's teaching above the word of God. Those are the only two choices. If you doubt that. If you doubt to be absent from the body. And now the body does go to sleep, right? In a in the cemetery, the word fall asleep is the same word we get cemetery. The body goes to rest. It's just our shell. But even it will one day be resurrected. New glorified body. We'll go to, uh, at the rapture. We'll meet with our souls. And we will spend eternity in new glorified bodies. Isn't that a lot to get excited about? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Stephen was so much like the one he served because Jesus had also commended his spirit to um, the Lord in his dying moments. There's a difference because Stephen commended his spirit. Well, he didn't commend it. He asked the Lord Jesus to receive it because he could not give it. At the time, well, yeah, the Lord commended his spirit, which was like a master commanding his servant. His spirit was his servant, and he, he commended it to his father and gave it up at the, at the moment he wanted to. Stephen couldn't do that, so he asked the Lord Jesus. You see, he put Jesus on the same equality basis with God, didn't he? Because he's asking Jesus to receive his spirit. Stephen knew he was the humble servant. And so he made it a prayer request to the master to receive it. And then in his final words of, of verse 60, again, <laughs> we find that Stephen is like his Lord because his last words ask for forgiveness on the behalf of those who are executing him. And isn't that what the Lord did? Remember, while they were nailing him to the cross repeatedly, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen couldn't say that because they did know what they were doing. He had just told them what they were doing. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. They knew what they were doing. And also Stephen can't read the heart like Jesus can. But uh, he was certainly displaying. Think of Saul watching all this. Stephen was certainly displaying the love of God shed abroad in his heart, wasn't he? 
um, even, even while he was in the agony of a violent death. Think as, he's, as this is happening. I mean, don't just picture Stephen standing there praying twice, you know. Stones, rocks are being hurled at him while all of this is going on. It was a violent, ugly death. And yet his final thoughts were not on himself. They were on others, and they were on the people actually killing him. And another thing that's like Christ, it says he said it in a loud voice. Where did that come from? Remember the Lord on the cross? Several times in a loud, booming voice so everybody could hear. Stephen wanted everybody to hear that he was asking for their forgiveness. What is that? That is the power of God in the dying moments of a man's life or a woman's life. I believe there is special grace given to us at the time of death. And there is that special peace that passes all understanding. My husband went to see a friend of his in the business yesterday who's probably gone today. He was in his last, last throes of death. And, and my husband said it was very, very difficult. For, but he, had, he said there was just something. He was a Christian. Today, he probably died yesterday because my husband said the hospice said he only had probably hours. Um, but there was something special. He said when, when Frank, he knows my husband is Christian, and he said, soon. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, he knew, he knows the Lord. But this is sad. I know I'm over time. But next to him was this woman who Frank had, to, she was lying in a bed, and he said, you know, no teeth, and she was ghastly white, and he thought she was dead. And he said, to somebody, he said, who is this woman lying here next to him? He was in, the man was in his own house, in his bedroom. He said, who is this woman here? And they said, that's his wife. She, and he said, how long has she been like that? 30 years. And the man has been taking care of his wife like that for 30 years years wow that's the grace of God isn't it right there I came home crying after Stephen's death and my husband was crying because of what he had seen you know Stephen's death tells Christians that Jesus will be there when it is our time at the time of death for the Christian heaven's blessings I believe become so real that the things of earth go grow strangely dim thank you Stephen's body was bruised and it was bloody and his breath was about gone but a spirit-filled believer to the very end he died interceding on the behalf of others and the Lord certainly honored his prayer didn't he death for Stephen meant coronation day the resurrected Lord says to those of us who make up his church be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So be faithful to our dying moments, ladies. All right? Let's be like Stephen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a life well lived. And for a death that's such an example for all of us. He, Stephen, found something worth dying for. The only message that saves eternal souls. The gospel, the truth of the death, burial, 
and resurrection of your only beloved son. Thank you, Father, for the truth that for a Christian to be absent from these bodies is to be present with you. We do thank you for your high priestly work, your kneeling work, interceding on our behalf. We thank you, of course, for your seated work of having finished the work of redemption for our sinful souls, our sinful lives, I should say. And thank you for your advocate for the defense position of standing, saying to Satan, leave her alone. She's mine. She belongs to me. Father, how we all ask that we could be faithful to the end, that we might finish our course well, and so that we, too, can hear your words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for this study on the book of Acts. It has been a blessing, and we do love you, and thank you for your resurrection. I pray over the resurrection weeks ahead that we will be witnesses. We will shine bright for you to everyone we encounter. For we do pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you.